economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Lou Graham, producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. With us, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, graduate assistant elect, Lawson Medlin. All right, well, lately we've been talking a lot about climate with heat waves coming through and, and uh, President Biden has thought about declaring a climate crisis emergency or climate emergency. And so we thought that would be an interesting topic to think about maybe some of the unintended consequences as well as maybe intended consequences of, of trying to pass policy like that. So Peter, you wanna bring us up to speed on what's going on? Yeah, so kind of the, the headlines are full of uh, talk for us, as you mentioned, about climate change and kind of the two major uh, stories that you hit on uh, that are going right now is first off, we have a heat wave, uh, especially throughout Europe, though we've been feeling it a little bit in the United States as well. We had a, a decently hot week here in Kansas last week, basically over 100 each day. Uh, but Europe uh, is having uh, higher than normal temperatures. And that was reported in Celsius, and I don't do European uh, measurements. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but they, they, the they tell me. I believe it got up to 114 Fahrenheit is the hottest. In, in the Europe. UK or in, yeah, in no, Portugal? In Portugal, not yeah. in the UK. But, yeah. yeah, and I think the UK was like relatively close, like 90s and like 100 90s. degree weather, which, which is uh, hot for them, by right. the way. I mean, which is similar like, to, I think, Oregon and yeah. Portland or something had. 100 or 90s or hundreds and they're normally in the 70s and yeah so yeah and again england usually cloudy dreary miserable weather <laughs> and so the sun is not like a common or welcome sight in some cases uh so it's, it's been kind of odd in europe and so this heat wave discussion has been happening uh and it, while that this heat wave discussion is happening we've heard uh sort of murmurings from climate activists and joe biden alluding to declaring a state of emergency an executive state of emergency for climate change. He said he was going to do that this last week when the announcement came. The announcement was, I'm going to do it in the upcoming weeks. And so a lot of climate activists were frustrated and let down by this, though there is still sort of this uh, comment or, or this thing hanging over everyone's heads that like this is going to be something that he does at some point. And by this, through this declaration, I, if I remember right, it just opens up a lot of federal money to support things, to throw money at. Is that right? Or, yeah, so or, I think that's part of it. So federal money, we don't actually know exactly what uh, he can or will do rather. Uh, the thought is that he's going to basically legislate by executive order, which is pretty common practice in America nowadays. nowadays yeah, unfortunately. Uh, just one of the downsides of the modern era, but it does happen. Uh, and so what exactly the executive orders will look like is sort of anybody's guess. Biden's in sort of this awkward place where his most ardent left-wing ideological allies, we could say, probably want very strong policies. Uh, but on the other hand, you think of what climate policies include, uh, then you look at the world out the window at like gas price signs and energy prices right now. <laughs> right. Uh, and you're, he's kind of in an awkward spot, which is maybe why he kicked the can down the road. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. yeah and just to elaborate on that, I mean, additional policies, restrictions, whatever, is just going to drive up the price of those fossil fuels even more when they're already high. Is that what you're? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's the thought is I, I'm in listeners like this isn't like a grand conspiracy or anything like this. The thought is that 
if your goal is to eliminate fossil fuels, you're by definition going to have to make them harder to get. That might look like higher prices. It might look like buying caps. Who knows exactly what it looks like? But the point is, if you want people to use less fossil fuels, you're going to have to prevent them from getting fossil fuel somehow, right? Yeah. Um, and maybe, by the way, a really nice version of that is like maybe the government would give you an electric car or something like that. Uh, but, you know, we, Pete Buttigieg has had some comments and some fights with Thomas Massey that have gone viral recently about, well, whether or not the grid can support that right now or could reasonably support it in five or even 10 years. Yeah. And so the energy is kind of a hot topic right now. Uh, I think because a lot of the COVID stuff is dying off uh, and not that COVID's going away, but the, the new cycle is done with it. People are sort of bored of it, whether or not it is actually, you know, a, a big issue or not. People have just moved on. But nonetheless, our news cycle loves a crisis. And so yeah. uh, Ukraine's kind of passed our popular culture on. Uh, COVID's kind of passed. And so we're, we're back to climate. That, that's kind of the go-to. Yeah. And not, and not only the news cycle needs a crisis, but the politicians need a crisis, I yeah. think, too. And coming into the midterm elections, if there's something that gives them, um, we're going to do this and this is a crisis, uh, then that might be something that'll be a saving grace in the midterms or something. Or that would be maybe the strategy. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there is a, uh, you've probably heard listeners, the old phrase, don't let a good crisis go to waste or something like that. But there is good economic research on uh, crises and how they're beneficial to governments. And so Robert Higgs is an economist and his, a historian who uh, kind of coined or pens uh, a work on what's, what's called the ratchet effect. And the idea of the ratchet effect is this. The idea is that government's power and the exercise of government power is like a ratchet in that when you pull on it and it clicks into place, it's not going to loosen at least to the previous level. And so the thought is, you know, we have World War II and we start spending, you know, increasing amounts on the military and we start getting involved on a global scale, you know, U.S. involvement in this war generally considered to be a good thing. But then after World War II, the U.S. never returns to the U.S. policy of old. It's not as if we go back to being sort of, uh, you know, the old phrase was, uh, alliance or trade with all, but no alliance, entangling alliances with no one. We made sort of this exception in World War II, but then we never stopped the exception. And now the United States is involved in basically everybody's conflict. And we've got entangling alliances with like half the world and bitter fuse <laughs> with the other half of the world yeah. uh, all the time. So this is a ratchet. Uh, and, way- and I think I liked what you said about inflation in your talk in the spring. Uh, inflation is actually a ratchet too. Yeah. So we ratchet up 9% and now in order to come back to the original, we'd have to have negative 9% to bring back, to unravel what was done to bring prices back. Yeah. And that's just not going to happen. I mean, right. at best, they're going to drop us back down to two yeah. in an ideal world and be responsible from here on out. But dropping down to two is not getting back to our old prices. So yeah. they, these, these prices are here to stay. Yeah, that's uh, right. At these it, higher levels. Inflation is a great example. Uh, this often happens in warfare. So that's, that's why we use that. But September 11th is another great example. We had the Patriot Act. We had uh, is it NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act. Yeah. Uh, these two acts passed after the 9-11 attacks, and they still exist to this day. Uh, do we believe that al-Qaeda is a serious threat to American citizens anymore? I don't think so. Uh, and yet we got the law that was justified by an al-Qaeda attack on the books about you know tapping phones and things like this. I guess I'd like to, since I brought up inflation, I don't want to derail this talk with inflation, but 
the purchasing power, the real uh, wage can be restored, though, if our wages go right. up the extra 9%. So yeah. I think that's worth pointing out that our, our purchasing power of our wage could come back to some sort of equilibrium. But yeah. um, so I'm the, not seeing that real fast. If, either. if, yeah, the, if the board of Ottawa University is listening, <laughs> uh, that, that is the, yes, e the economically the, the correct the thing to do. pay That's at right. Ottawa. Yeah, yes, and it's all, another right. common economic theory is that you have to pay professors even more afterwards. I don't know. Oh, I'm yeah, sure. there's some theory like that. Yeah. I forgot about that. That uh, might be the Jacobson effect. That, yeah, something, right? so, something like that. <laughs> So, uh, but Russ, you know, you, you had uh, gotten or tracked down some headlines kind of maybe not proving this, but evidencing this point that, you know, crises are sort of a, a staple. Yeah. So I, I found these clips of headlines dating back to 1966, and I'll just share a couple of them. I think I'll go back to Al Gore in 2008. Uh, he has uh, predicts ice free Arctic by 2013. Of course, that didn't come true. Uh, famine in 10 years if we don't give up eating fish, meat, and dairy. Um, rising sea levels, will, this is 1989 now, rising sea levels will obliterate nations if nothing's done by 2000. Um, acid rain kills life in lakes, 1980. Uh, 1972, new ice age uh, coming by 2020 or 2030. So I guess there's still a little bit of time for that one. That was predicted back in 1971. Um, and then we got oil prices. Let's see, we got uh, 1967 dire famine forecast by 1975. That was a big thing back in the 70s about uh, food running out and uh, there being uh, scarcity in that respect. 1970, the world will use up all of its natural resources by 2000. Interesting. That one didn't kind of come to true. So this whole thing of uh, uh, creating a sense of urgency is a uh, tactic um, when you're trying to persuade people your way. So these headlines and what politicians do, you know, shortening that time horizon, let's just say that the science uh, is 200 years. Actually, they did do this recently. I think the, um, some of the, you know, the, the earth will warm by one degree and by uh, 2,400 or whatever, or 2,400. Uh, that doesn't create a sense of urgency, right? It's like, oh, we have to change today. Otherwise, look at 300 years from now, we're, we're really messed up. Um, that doesn't do the same thing as the shorter timelines. Right. And also with that, I feel like when I hear a lot of these studies, it's just people that are looking at some raw numbers and then just can going based off of that. And they're not considering entrepreneurship and innovation. That That's what pushes those deadlines way down the road is because yeah, we have a set amount of resources, but we find ways to extend that set amount further and further down the line. Yeah, no, that, that's actually a, a great point, Austin. Um, in economics, we call that the Lucas critique. The idea of the Lucas critique is that uh, economists shouldn't assume that the world just won't respond to, you know, their own models, for example. Yeah. And so if, you know, you tell the world, oh, oil is going to run out by 2030, well, the world's going to respond to that, right? And our, if our model assumes they won't respond to that, uh, then our model is assuming they're stupid and uh, <laughs> yeah. they aren't. Uh, and it tends to be the case that people are right more than economists right. uh, and, and projections like economists are not great stock selectors necessarily. Yeah, let's kind of work that a little further of the market response. So uh, the model predicts if we consume the way we are today, then we'll be out by, let's just say, 2040, just to make up a number. But what really happens in the free market is that as that scarcity manifests itself, oil prices start to rise 
And that all of a sudden means people are going to find it profitable to seek alternative energies on their own. So we go to solar, we go to wind, whatever. And then as that, we substitute away from that uh, oil prices or fossil fuels, or we find new ways to explore them. We have new discoveries. Uh, all of a sudden, that when those prices do rise, it's the signal that uh, it becomes profitable to seek alternatives. And that's what's always missing in all of those models. Yeah, exactly. And th this is missing, by the way, in environmental models, uh, models by ecologists, models by biologists. This happened with COVID models, too. That's why you got the Oh, I forget the name of the university. We talked about it back when we were talking about COVID, but the, a university out of England that did this dire study showing, you know, way more millions of people dead than actually died from COVID on a much, uh, the imperial model, that's what it was called, a uh, really catastrophic model. Yeah, yeah. And the reason that it had that is it assumed no one was going to adapt their behavior at all in any way. No one was going to start wearing masks or distancing. Uh, no one was going to vaccinate all these different things. Right, right. Uh, no one would change their behavior. Like the early findings of the disease were then extrapolated into the future. Right. And yes, holding constant people's behavior. Yes, there's two million deaths, but yeah. not uh, allowing the people to adapt and change and wear a mask or avoid going crowds on their own. Yeah, that would have looked a lot different. And so. listeners, if you're anywhere older than like the 30, if you're you've got a few decades under your belt, you've heard peak oil predictions before. You know, this 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 year's peak oil, next year's peak oil, 10 years yeah. from now, peak oil, 20 years from now. 1977, Department of Energy says oil will peak in the 90s. And then there's multiple peak oil, 1996, peak oil in 2020. Uh, so the, these peak oil predictions have been wrong every time. And well. one of the reasons that those are wrong, uh, on top of what Russ mentioned, so we've got, you know, innovations on solar and these things, uh, innovations on the combustion engine, you know, cars get four or five times the miles per gallon they did just like 50, 60 years ago. Another big factor is, uh, how, let's, let's think about this for a second. How do these studies figure out if we're going to run out of oil? Well, here's how they do it. It's really not that difficult. They take the all the oil that we know about in the world right now, and then we divide that by our usage per day, and then we get to when our peak oil is going to be. Yeah. The problem with that is when do people discover new sources of oil? It's not like people are just accidentally doing this all the time. You know, maybe it made sense, Beverly Hillbillies, you shoot at the ground and oil pops up. Maybe that used to be how things were. But nowadays what happens is when oil starts to be high priced, it makes more sense for companies to find more. And so you don't go searching for known reserves when there's plenty of oil, you search for known reserves when, or unknown reserves when oil runs out. And so like there, there's this ridiculous like, oh, we're gonna run out if we don't find more. And it's like, yeah, but we're not looking for more right now. And when we start to run out, we are gonna look for more. Not to mention other things, you know, shale, sands and fracking. So there's all sorts of stuff. Yeah. All right, well, this looks like a good spot for a break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about the faith we have in these numbers. And, you know, does is there areas uh, in the Bible that kind of lead us to uh, thinking that we shouldn't be worried about those issues of scarcity? Uh, how much are we called to change our behavior? How much is it just the way life is? So we'll be back in just a bit. The Gordon Institute is offering free economics courses to homeschool students in the Ottawa area. In those courses, we're gonna cover things like scarcity, supply and demands, and go through some economic fallacies. We're doing one class right now, but we'll continue doing classes throughout the year. If you're interested, please contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. By 2030, the Gordy Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. 
The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to student experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlaps of market, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. The Borden Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for free enterprise education and its contribution to human flourishing, faith and economics in action. We have some great high school programs like PPE Fest. This is an event where students get to listen to some world-renowned speakers and participate in a competition geared around philosophy, politics, and economics, PPE. Our everyday economics program is just a half day on a Saturday, and we have integrated discussion about common sense economics. We have a college credit microeconomics course that runs every eight weeks. Your high school student can earn college credit for the special price of $200. If you know some students interested in programs like these, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. All right, so we're back here. Uh, cliffhanger on, on faith. I mean, does the, does the Bible give us any direction, do you think, uh, Peter, on, on um, uh, let's say, having faith in something evolving, our behavior changing, adapting. Um, I think that's the hard thing for a lot of folks. And, and there's, some, there's, there's some truth to that on, well, we can't just wait for things to be a disaster and then adapt to them. We need to do something today and curb our, so these crisis um, mentality is, is important. I, I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot of biblical approaches you could take here. Uh, depending, uh, I'll get something early out of the way. A lot of Christians are, are comforted by their interpretations of Revelation and their thought is, well, if this is how the world ends, it certainly doesn't end some other way. Uh, but there are Christians with different interpretations of Revelation. Some view it a little bit uh, more figuratively, metaphorically, as kind of the standard with a few literal things. Some view it more literally with a few metaphorical things. Uh, so some other things, though, to consider, apart from like prophecy and revelation, uh, is the Bible has this concept of common grace. And the idea of common grace is that uh, basically the results of sin are not as bad as they should be uh, for people on earth. Or and, as they could be. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, as they, or as they could be. Yeah. <clears throat> so there's this idea that the wages of sin is death. Uh, but we don't all die instantly when we sin. So rain some of rain that is, falls on the righteous and unrighteous alike. Yeah, exactly. So, so there are some things, some barriers between us and, you know, the consequences of actions, bad actions uh, that God has put in place. So the common grace is uh, another place where we can find it. Uh, and then lastly, I would say, you know, the other piece of uh, faith that we have is, you know, someone sometimes this, there's this like little phrase here. There's only one earth, you know, we're only going to get one. Uh, and to that, I would say, well, I am not super worried about there only being one earth because I believe there's life after earth as well. Not that I don't care that there's only one earth and we shouldn't take care of it. Uh, but this, there's only one earth mentality, uh, is at least a little bit wrong, uh, and maybe places our security too much in like the natural world around us or something like that. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, you know, putting your faith and trust and love in God, uh, first commandment, put God above right. all else, um, when we look at some of these research and analysis and uh, it's coming from man. So it's kind of like put it a little bit. And I, I don't like, I like, I don't like that as a scapegoat that, Oh, God has, has a cover. Got it. But truthfully, as a Christian uh, with saving grace, as opposed to common grace, uh, you're covered. Everything's yeah. going to be okay. I mean, even if, even if something does happen, yeah, even if, if life ever after, worse, everything's going to be right? okay. Yeah. Eventually in the, in the long run. Yeah. Even when, death comes uh it's not going to be for everybody yeah. sound like canes <laughs> in the long run we're all dead in the long yeah. run we're all winning yeah 
No, I, and yeah, <laughs> as a Christian in the long run, we're all living. Yeah. To, so to kind of like pull off that, uh, you know, it, if we wanted to run a horse race too, to see, well, what's prevailing right now, like uh, the results of, you know, the fall or common grace, it seems to be common grace. And so like yeah. a good example of this is uh, you look at this like heat wave throughout Europe. This is one of the major headlines and heat waves in general are kind of like part of the fear of climate change. There, there's, I've noticed kind of a back and forth, you know, some people like to claim that, no, it's always been climate change. And then some people say, but it, it, it is going to make things warmer. Like there's sort of this weird, I can't tell it. So I can already not yet sort of deal on being warmer. <laughs> uh, but I think warming is part of climate change, at least extreme war, maybe with extreme cold. Sometimes that's the, so anyways, heat waves, there will be more heat waves. This is what is uh, said by people who are climate change folks. And uh, I think that's possible. And I think, uh, you know, if you look at the data, average temperatures have risen. Uh, mm -hmm. So it is certainly a, a possibility. And, you know, I, my default view is whatever the eco, the ecologist consensus is, uh, I, I'm more than willing to accept that because I haven't looked into it too much myself. But here's the thing. It doesn't really matter if it's hot outside, if you can be cold yourself, right? Average temperatures are not super important. For a really extreme example, listeners, I, it's a goofy example, but I like to use it with students because it helps you understand something. If we could like concentrate just like one square foot of air and make it like a million degrees on Earth, the average temperature of Earth would be very, very, very high if we could contain that temperature in, in like a box yeah. and it doesn't get out. Uh, but that wouldn't affect anybody, right? There's kind of a, a parallel to like our daily lives. The reason why heat's not such a huge deal in the United States, for example, and I can prove this with some stats in a second, is that we're actually able to contain that heat in a place that we're not. That's namely outside. That's where we contain it. By the way, maybe someday we'll be able to contain it outside of cities too, and uh, you know, change the weather in the entire cities. I don't right. know. Uh, but the the point is this: is that uh, if you look at now compared to 1901, there were more heat waves, according to whatever a national weather association was in 1901 than there are today. Uh, I think the average temperature is still higher than it was in 1901, but not very much. Uh, now in 1901 in Chicago alone, we had 10,000 heat wave related deaths. The CDC estimates in the US for the last 10 years, there have been an average of 702 in the entire country every year. And so this is like seven one hundred seven percent of the previous compared death rate 10, in the entire country compared <laughs> to just chicago alone where there were ten thousand deaths and so this is really on the fall and we all know why i don't even have to give you the explanation you know why i know why it's because of air conditioning uh so it actually doesn't matter if we screw up our natural environment so long as our adaptations are able to overcome that screw up and, and i i use the word screw up kind of lightly because does it really matter if it's hotter outside, if it doesn't impact any of us? I, I don't really think in particular. Yeah, I think uh, you're bringing up a point I try to get to my students, too, is that the I, I say it in a different way. But what you're saying is the average temperature doesn't exist. Yeah, it truly doesn't yeah. exist yeah. as a reality. Yeah, no one experiences right? so average. Temperature, if we take the right. average temperature of uh, Kansas and we take every county in Kansas and it's 100 here and it's 70 here and, you know, on a given time and we take that average, the average doesn't actually exist. Yeah, it doesn't right? make any difference. Yeah. So it, it's uh, it is interesting. It's a manifestation of of a, a statistic, but economists want people to be thinking at the margin. Yeah. Right? yeah. If we, if we truly measured the average temperature, by that I mean we measure the temperature in every place on Earth. I guarantee it's lower because of things like air conditioning, right? If we measure the temperature oh, of rooms inside the room, yeah, yeah that's a great I, point. I, yeah. I mean, and we don't do that. And why don't we do that? Well, because we think the 
temperature of the environment uh, itself matters. And maybe it does. To and, it could, yeah. and, and some people will sit put back rightly, I think they'll say, but some countries don't have air conditioning, especially those poor European countries uh, in Western Europe, those undeveloped countries over there, like Germany and Britain, uh, <laughs> who, who have not been able to catch up to the 21st century on energy because of their regulations. Uh, and so it's unfair, some people might say. So you're raising the temperature at everybody else, you know, in these undeveloped countries like Germany's expense. Yeah, if government regulation has kept air conditioning from emerging, uh, who killed these people by heat? Right, yeah. So, so that's, that's one answer back is that you look at the countries where climate policy is the most successful. And these are the countries right now that are struggling without Russian oil to, you know, have enough energy for their economy. So that's one huge issue. Another issue is, okay, let's talk about the third world then. Let's say they're not held back by policies, even though they probably are. Let's say it's not policies that are holding them back. They just haven't had the chance to develop yet. So maybe it's unfair to them if we all get nice air conditioning and they all get the super hot. Let me ask you a question. What's harder, do you think? Uh, providing air conditioning to a country or changing the temperature of the world. <laughs> like, seriously, there's a lot of hubris in this. Like, how strong do we think we can influence the temperature of, again, the world versus figuring out a way to develop a country to have AC units? Yeah, dumping billions, probably trillions worldwide into changing the climate of the world versus giving everybody a portable air conditioner. Yeah. And, and I, I recognize, we might be able to give every single person on earth yeah, an air conditioner. Yeah, yeah. And I recognize economic development's harder than that. And like, that'd be a little, like if we actually tried to do that policy, it would be way more complicated than we thought. But again, we're talking about how hard is it to provide everyone with air conditioning versus how hard is it for us to change the entire world? And it's like the climate of the whole world. It's, I'm actually literally asking, is it harder to change the climate of a building or the world? That's what I'm asking. Yeah, right. Uh, and then the answer is obvious, right? Yeah. Uh, so even, you know, there are disproportionate impacts. Again, coastal communities is another one. But what's harder? or more expensive, changing the entire atmosphere of the world sea level. or figuring out a way to make those communities robust to, fl to flooding or make it easier to, to move or in. helping move or yeah. whatever, if that happens. That, that, that's exactly right. Like, is it harder to move all of LA inwards by a hundred miles or is it harder to change the temperature of the world? That one's maybe a little bit of a more complicated question, but we at least need to consider that yeah. as a possibility. And the high rise buildings uh, around Miami, uh, you know, the first, uh, five floors become posts now yeah. and somehow you retrofit and the water level rises and you're still living in, you know, luxury for the next 50 floors. Yeah. And again, listeners, you might think, well, that's ridic ridiculous, but towns do this all the time. Ottawa, Kansas used to flood all the time. Yeah. We had several great floods that destroyed the city. What did we do? We built a, we built a wall. No, we built a levee <laughs> uh, that prevents the water from rising out of the river yeah. and flooding us. And a lot of Cape Girardeau, uh, Missouri, where I went to college, they did the same thing. I'm not saying everyone on the ocean needs to build a wall now, but the point is there is some innovation that we as rich developed countries yeah. uh, can think of that will help everybody throughout the All world. All the reservoirs that I that I fished were, were done by uh, the federal government and uh, retaining the water. And so they, yeah. they regulate that flow of water that's coming south. And so all of these innovations, that was in the 1950s to, to take into account that type of flooding so yeah i'd like to play devil's advocate for our listeners here for a second and well what about our all of our ecosystems and food supply chains like what if that comes under fire because of rising temperatures what would the solution be there and yeah so, mind? so there's two answers to this because i think what when people ask questions like this they're actually asking two different questions one question is what about basically the animals and the earth like 
if we consider animals and currents like plant life to have like its own inherent value and we're destroying that, uh, isn't that bad? I kind of reject the premise of that. I do think animals are like more important than dirts. Like I'm more, I'm willing to admit that, but I already believe it's okay for people to take animal life in order to survive. That's what eating meat is, by the way. Uh, so, you know, unless you're a vegan listening, you might have a, a good argument against me that you're consistent. But if you eat meat, uh, you agree with me here that uh, human life is more important than animal life. By the way, there's not really any good evidence that species are going extinct. I think the only confirmed species extinction we had was like 200 years ago. Uh, oftentimes these extinction numbers that are put out there are again, estimates based on non-adaptation by animals. It's happened several times that we have found previously right. thought to be extinct animals. I just places remember that being on the headline in the last few months <laughs> yeah, that yeah. they found a species that they thought was extinct. Uh, and then another thing is like some species will benefit from this. So why do we think it's okay for some species to benefit it? And you know, others not like this whole, like it's hard to play trade-off games with animals anyways, but uh, so there's lots of answers to that. The other thing is like food, you know, that's another example. And again, uh, adaptation is the answer here. Uh, technology has made it such that a recent paper that came out is we figured out how to double the reproductive genes in rice in China. And the early research is showing that this will double the yield of rice plants for the same amount of inputs. Yeah, and there's heat resistant crops yep. that were, have been evolved. I don't know exactly which ones they are, but I know different innovations in technology to resist heat or to be in wet places, let's say, or whatever. I yeah. mean, it, it is just all examples of human innovation and technology that changes to adapt that. Yeah, there's this popular lie out there that before industrialization and before the development of the world as we know it, people were just like walking around eating off the plants and, you know, having these beautiful <laughs> lives and like, oh, there's a berry, I'm gonna pick it up. I don't know. Even the fruit that existed back then was smaller and less nutritious than the fruit today. Like peaches did not, you wouldn't recognize a peach from a hundred years ago. It'd be like tiny. Most of it is the pits. There's very little fruit on it. We've engineered our food to be much larger and more sustaining than it is. I don't have any worry that humans will not be able to continue this even in the face of like higher temperatures, which by the way, uh, Florida becomes wine country in a hundred years of climate change. So I, I'm fine with that. Uh, France, too bad for you. Florida's the new wine hub. Uh, it, it, the point is not all of this is bad. It's kind of goofy to think that like the current temperature is the best temperature for humans. Like it just happens to come out that way, right? Like maybe there are other better temperatures for humans. Maybe there aren't, but uh, it's, it certainly would seem very lucky that we landed on the perfect one. Now I would like to counter a little bit, uh, going down to Guatemala, um, they're, they have resisted some of the chemical changes with their crops. Now they live in, in um, paradise uh, for the most part, temperature wise, but there is a, a, a different taste to some of their fruits and vegetables. Sure. Um, so there, there is some of that that I, I think uh, uh, we may have lost through some of the innovation and in mass production. Yeah, uh, I, But the trade-off is we got more of it less people going hungry, but maybe it doesn't taste quite as good as it did. Yeah. But and then I, we've got the organic movement, right? People going back to those and there's still seeds and ways to do that. If that's somebody's preference that they like that yeah. taste, they can still do it. It's yeah. just going to cost more. And I'm fine with those markets developing so long as we as a society are allowed to recognize and, you know, uh, act on the trade-off between uh, less natural food and more well, right. thought unnatural food, even though I think that's a garbage. But all too often what happens is government comes in and says, 
oh, we, we need people eating the, the natural organic. So right. we're going to restrict that. And then yeah. what happens to food prices? They go up. So the, that's the, the market response to additional constraints is that prices are going to go up. And of yeah. course, right now, people are pretty sensitive to rising prices. So yeah, I agree. So those increased prices, you're not able to save, you're not able to innovate and make new products right. that could further help people. Yeah, especially when it's hitting the basics surviving. of life. Yeah, food and gas, uh, this, this is all disproportionately hitting lower income folks uh, harder than high income. Yeah, there, folks, there's so. very few scientists in a poor economy. Um, I was just say. reading one article that said, uh, in the United States, Food and I can't remember if gas was included or not, but represents about 10% of our budget. Mm. But in the developing countries, it's 70 to 80% right. of our budget, right? Yep. So when when there's a 20% food hike price, like we've seen in some, certainly some products and, and in general with food, you are really hitting lower income people a lot harder. Yeah. I don't think people totally realize that. So, yeah. So I am uh, long run, I'm very optimistic about the world's response to climate change. What I'm less optimistic about is. Uh, our ability to rightly handle things with policy. And so this kind of brings us back to uh, one of the things that scares me about the recent announcement of emergencies, and this has been talked about for a long time, like let's use this tool of emergencies. Like this isn't a secret and you can find environmentalists arguing this. And after coronavirus, this is actually like a, a reasonable argument and reasonable from like an internal consistency sense. So what I mean by that is <laughs> unreasonable if, otherwise yeah if, <laughs> if you take the unreasonable assumption that climate change will kill us all in 50 years which some people do believe that by the way the science doesn't even say that for the record uh there are you know economists have weighed these trade-offs and like you know there's losses from climate change but there's also losses from like regulating climate change and it's actually like pretty moderate regulations that are apparently the efficient point between mm -hmm. those so no the world's not ending but if you take that line that, oh, you know, this is the window, and if we don't do it in the next 25 years, uh, the world is over and we, we've all died. Man, you should believe in lockdowns then. We could have climate lockdowns. Uh, everybody's going to stay inside, you know, just like six months to slow the spread of carbon emissions, everyone. Uh, we'll flatten the curve. Yeah. And you can use your Zoom call 15 minutes a day because we don't use too much electricity, but we can have our Zoom calls for our work still. And all we'll that. get rationed what time according to your last name. So yeah. M, you get to your 15 minutes at four o'clock because we don't want to overwhelm the internet either. So yeah, and we're we're gonna shut down some businesses, <laughs> but only the conservative ones to start. So you know that, that'll <laughs> save some emissions, things like that. Uh, and we'll shut down the the progressive one too, too eventually. Don't worry about that, but it'll be slow phase out. Uh, and of course, we'll you know continue to uh, manufacture arms and all those things. But we'll we'll, and we'll, we'll create jobs because they'll have right. climate police. Well, we'll be hired. The government will be hiring climate police, so this will increase jobs. This will Boost be good the for the economy. economy. And so once good. people stop uh, stop agreeing with you and disobeying, then we'll build a dome over the entire United States and say climate control. We did yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly right. <laughs> Uh, but uh, listeners, the, the little joke thing is like, actually, you know, again, if you believe the world is ending because of climate change, which it's not, but if you believe that and you supported the lockdowns, there's no reason why you wouldn't support climate lockdowns too. Uh, and so I, I am a little bit concerned about this, that um, Americans displayed a willingness to sort of put up with kind of crazy fly by the seat of your pants policy, uh, which in retrospect is exactly what we were doing with COVID. Uh, and we, that policy was able to persist in a lot of places, there are pieces of it that still persists to this day. It's been like I, my hope years. is we won't roll over. We'll, we will have learned a little bit from COVID and we won't roll over to the same degree we rolled over for COVID. I, I hope that's true. I, and, and I, I'm always the optimist. So that, yeah. that might be, <laughs> and, and you know, we have, there's reasons to think that again, too. Like, again, 
the science is settled to the these like uh, catastrophe types we the the climate change stuff is not going to kill the entire human population like go read the literature yourself i i'm sure you're not going to find a paper or many papers that say like climate change is going to kill us all by the year 2100 even though this is sometimes the rhetoric uh and i think people get that too I think a lot of the fear about climate stuff is actually more lip service than real. Uh, you can see this with like the current issues that matter to people. Climate's like at the bottom of the list. Inflation's at the top of the list. If mm. you survey Americans mm -hmm. right now, uh, COVID, I think there's actually reasonable uh, uncertainty that could cause you to rate, rate coronavirus as a very high risk. I, I, I was this way, by the way, when coronavirus first started. Uh, I was like sanitizing groceries and stuff like that because I didn't know what it was. No one knew what it was. And you were hearing all the news stories and the death rate is pretty significant. It's it's not like something that we should just totally ignore. But I, I was pretty afraid when it first started because I, there was some uncertainty. With climate change, we don't have that uncertainty. It's not going to kill us all. That doesn't mean it's going to have fun effects for everybody. That's not what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, but it's not... I think people recognize that it's not the the threat of tomorrow the world blows up. And they're fairly slow moving effects, you know, as yeah. the you know water level starts to rise, it doesn't rise three feet overnight, you know, short of floods, but I'm talking about the overall average sea level. So you got time to adapt, I guess is where I was going with that. And I know we're getting close to the end of our time here, but I, I, I for, for Justin, we'll see. I'm, I'm going I'm to be <laughs> Justin and we'll see if he agrees with my take. Is I have a feeling Justin would look at both of us and say, you're both crazy. <laughs> Some of these people really do believe this with religious fervor and you can't take lightly that they're going to, going to do this. Yeah. And they're not going to care about, you know, your little job or, you know, your other little concerns because they're saving the world right and, and i think if fake justin did actually say that in real life uh that that is the the little bit of concern is and we've we've thrown around this idea of a podcast for a while of a lot of people do make this climate thing their religion mm -hmm. uh, this is really like the center of a lot of yeah. like leftist belief not not all of them they're yeah. like there's labor leftists and there's equality leftists but there are climate leftists and i i i would agree with uh straw man fake justin here that uh, those people really do believe what they're saying. And so we need to be really vigilant to combat those people. Yeah, for, yeah. Uh, we have to equally have some evidence and reasoning. Right. Uh, yeah. To counter so, no, so normal Americans can see, oh, okay, this is not like the sea level rises tomorrow and washes away my house. Yes. Right. Yeah. So. All right. Well, this has been a production of the Gordon Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Uh, we have a little donate button on our website. So if you'd like to support the Gordon Institute and all we do along with this podcast, uh, we truly appreciate it. Otherwise, be sure to forward uh, this podcast and others along to your friends that you think they would enjoy. Other than that, be fruitful multiply. Thanks.